This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to be talking about a battle, um, a battle between our theory of the very large and our theory of the very small. And it might look like a rather uneven fight, um, but in fact, it has gone back and forth, and, and the most recent round really started here at UCSB a few years ago. So I want to start with two quotations. The first is from Albert Einstein, God does not play dice with the world. So what he was objecting to was quantum mechanics. When you picture an atom, one or more electrons going around a nucleus, you might picture it as this orderly thing like the Earth going around the sun. But, but in fact, the truth, what we know from the theory of quantum mechanics, is much more well exciting in a way. It's, 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 that it, it's this picture here. There's a fundamental randomness in nature. You cannot predict where, if you go and look for that electron, unlike what you might expect from this picture, you cannot predict, you fundamentally cannot predict where you will find it. It could be anywhere in that cloud. And that's, that randomness is what Einstein was objecting to, but this theory of quantum mechanics really is the basis for our understanding of atoms, of chemistry, of matter, of electronics. It, it's correct. Stra- it's strange, but it's correct. That's the first quote. And the second quote is from Stephen Hawking, um, 50 years later, and it says that things are even worse than Einstein had feared because he said, God, only, God not only plays dice, he sometimes throws the dice where they cannot be seen. And it's this quotation, which is from the actual paper that pointed out this conflict between these two theories, which we are still trying to sort out today. So um, a little bit of background. Around 100 years ago, we had three great revolutions in physics. It must have been quite an exciting time to have these one after the other, special relativity, general relativity, and quantum mechanics. And these revolutions really changed the way that we think about space and time and matter and even about reality itself, that business with the dice. Um, And these theories are great. They've each been confirmed in many precise experiments. um, Today, they still form the basis for our understanding of of the laws of nature. But our work was not done um, 100 years ago because we have here three or maybe two and a half new principles. And these principles were discovered and understood one at a time. Um, and, but, but, and then what people found is if you get into situations where two or more of these new principles are acting together, they don't always fit. You have to figure out how to fit these things together. And figuring out how to fit these together has really driven, has been behind much of the science of the last, much of the fundamental physics of the last hundred years and is still um, challenging us today. So um, to give some examples, some background. So, so what these theories each say is that if you go to extreme situations that we, we aren't used to, uh, things behave very differently from, from what we've experienced. And there are three extremes that seem to matter, the very fast, the very massive, and the very small. And so each, in those three extremes, each of these principles, each of these new theories tells us what happens. 
But now the question is, the question that, that drives us is, um, what if something is both very fast and very small, so we have to take into account both this quantum principle I said a little bit about and special relativity? And that turned out to be a very interesting question. So um, quantum mechanics. This, this, this here is called Schrodinger's equation. You're not supposed to have equations in a public lecture. So <laughs> you can think of this as a piece of art. Um, <laughs> But it's a very useful piece of art because it allows us to understand with great precision the properties of atoms and molecules and, and again, all kinds of ordinary matter. It's great, but it can't be the whole story it, because um, it works for things that aren't moving too fast. But when things start moving close to the speed of light, uh, this equation does not incorporate the relativity principle, so it cannot be correct. And so a few years after this was discovered, this fellow, Paul Dirac, set out to find the right equation, one that would do all the good things that this one does, and, but, but in fact be, have the relativity principle built in, and he succeeded. So here's another piece of art, the Dirac equation. And again, this, so, so all this, they look a little different, but when you unpack them, um, all of the predictions of this one uh, you still get them here, but when you get the particles that are moving very fast, it does the right thing. So, so he had succeeded, but he got a bonus. He got an unexpected bonus because this, this equation actually has twice as many solutions as he expected. There were the half, so maybe this equation is describing the motion of an electron. So there were half of them that described the motion of the electron, but the other half, what were they for? And he realized after a little bit that his equation had predicted a new particle, the positron, the, the anti-electron. Um, this was the first antimatter. And happily, within a couple of years, um, it was observed. This is a, an old-fashioned uh, experimental photographic plate, and that curved track there, in fact, has the signature of exactly this predicted particle. So this is great. This is, this is a fantastic triumph. He had, both, well, he had fit together or begun to fit together these two theories. And the experience we've had, and it's one reason that we, we, we enjoy doing this, we work so hard at it, is when you get these things to fit, you learn things that you didn't expect to learn. Here, he learned about the existence of antimatter. Now, um, just quickly, this, this story of, of the very fast and the very small didn't go, end with Dirac. And in fact, you may have heard a few years ago about the discovery, discovery of the Higgs boson. Um, actually, it's fantastic. The, the, the announcement of the discovery was made by another UCSB physicist, uh, Joanne Candila, who was the head of this experiment in, in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and this was a fantastic triumph um, of experiment, a tremendous effort of, of, of many thousands of scientists. Um, but in fact, it had been predicted 40 years earlier, about 40 years before, um, we had finally pieced together a basic theory of ordinary matter, and it has this boring name, the standard model. Um, but at the time, it predicted five particles that had not yet been seen. And as you can see, they were discovered one by one, finally capped off by the Higgs boson. Not just the existence of the particles, but their very detailed properties. And the ability to make such precise predictions. The fact that in this case, theory was able to get far ahead of experiment. The ability to make these precise predictions 
um, is largely because of this combination of these two principles, special relativity and quantum mechanics. When you get them to fit together, you, you, you learn a lot. And we learned all of this from that. Okay, so that's, that's two of our three principles. But the third one, general relativity, which is really my story, uh, is going to be much harder and is still going on. So, so um, again, there's the very fast, the very massive, and the very small. And so just, just, just a word about this theory, general relativity. General relativity is Einstein's theory of gravity. It says that mass and energy actually make space and time bend. And that this bending is the origin of what we see as gravity, we see as a force. And, you know, this is all words, but of course all these things come with lots more equations. It's a very precise theory, and over the years, especially as technology has been improved, um, its predictions have been tested with more and more accuracy, and it's correct. This is what gravity is, the bending of space and time. So now we come to, again, the problem of confronting two principles. What if something is both very massive and very small? And now that might sound like a contradiction. Um, but in fact, you, there, you, if you go, there are extreme places where you have to confront this. And, and here are three of them, probably the three most important. Um, so the thing that particle physicists like to do, that what they find extremely revealing is to collide particles together at high energy and see what happens. And in fact, this is a picture of one of the collision events um, in which the Higgs was first seen, the Higgs boson. Um, and so if you, if you collide these particles together at high enough energy, you can get into this state of large mass and very small. Unfortunately, even our most powerful accelerator is, is still not at the level where we could you know, test these two theories together. Second very important one is the early moments of the Big Bang. Um, the, so the universe is expanding. If you, that, mean, that means if you go further in the past, it was smaller and more compact. And in fact, we can follow this process backwards extraordinarily far, both with theory and with observation of things left over from those times. We can follow this back extraordinarily far. And if you follow it back far enough, things will be so close together, packed so close together, that we'll have to worry about the very small and the very massive at the same time. And the third, which is going to be, after some more introduction, my story, is uh, black holes, and I'll tell you a little later why I draw a black hole like that, but right in the center of the black hole, you have something very small and very massive. So the theme of my talk, again, is this conflict between these two theories, general relativity and quantum mechanics, and what we're hoping to learn from that. But, but they don't always conflict. To a certain point, they work together just fine. And I, wanna, I want to mention a very important example of that. So here's a picture taken uh, with the Hubble telescope showing a vast region of the universe. Each of these blurry swatches is, is a galaxy, many billions of stars. So you can imagine the size of that picture. And the question I want to ask is, why are there galaxies at all? Why is the universe not just filled with a uniform gas? That would be sort of the simplest thing that you might think would come out of sort of, well, that would be the simplest thing that might happen. Why, why are there galaxies at all? 
And more quantitatively, um, what determines the exact pattern? The typical size of galaxies, uh, the, the spacing between them, and other details of the pattern of the galaxies. And the answer, remarkably, is quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics, like I told you, is this basic randomness um, of the very small, this basic randomness of where you would find the electron in the atom. These galaxies, as I said, are billions of stars. But the remarkable thing is that the expansion of the universe can take these little tiny microscopic randomnesses, fluctuations, and expand them. And as they expand and grow, they eventually become the seeds of everything in the universe, the galaxies, the stars, and us. It's a fantastic success of science, first of all, to know the answer to this question, and secondly, that the answer ties together the very large and the very small uh, in, in such a remarkable way. And again, this is, again, not, there's, this is not just words and pictures, but, but behind all of this, there is, um, there is data. So, so here is uh, another pattern. This is a pattern of radiation from the early universe. And this graph here is, a, a, is a, an extraction of the pattern in a more precise way. And what you can see, I think very clearly, is this wonderful match between the observations, that's these red dots here, which are the distribution of spots of different sizes, and the theory, which is the green line. So, so, so again, a fantastic success of modern science, both on the theoretical side, the ability to put all these ideas together, and on the experimental side, the, the observations that are involved here are, are just fantastic. Okay, so there's something that worked. And by the way, this pattern here that we understand formed extremely early. It formed in the first, within the first second after the Big Bang. And in fact, probably within the first tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. And, and again, we're talking about using quantum mechanics here, the fluctuations, together with general relativity, which describes the shape, the expansion of space. And they're working together just fine. But if we push this back even further, if we want to really have an understanding of not just the first, this, the sort of, if we want to have an understanding that reaches even earlier, if we really want to understand how the Big Bang began, um, our theories don't go that far. They, they cease to work together, they break down, and, and we have to find the more complete theory that combines these two principles, and that's our goal. So um, that was one place where quantum mechanics and, 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 and general relativity come together, the, the Big Bang. Here's another. So this, this, again, as I said, is a black hole. And um, this is the fate of a very massive star. A very massive star, if it's too heavy, um, its gravity will pull together so forcefully that nothing can stop that. And the mass will collapse. And as far as any equation we have tells us, the mass will collapse down to a perfect point right there. And because, again, matter makes space curve, that's, that's what gravity is, you get a, the shape of space is something like, this is a cartoon, but it's a good cartoon. It shows that this incredibly dense mass has, has, has produced this this very dramatic bending of space. And at the center of here, clearly our equations are breaking down because curvature and density and everything are infinite. But, but before we, long before we get to the singularity, actually, there's another interesting place in a black hole, which is the event horizon. The event horizon is the point of no return, the point past which 
nothing really happens as you pass this point, or, or not, we didn't think it did. But, but, but once you're past that point, you, you, you've, you've, you're so deep in this, in this potential, in this, in this gravitational field, that you, can't, you can never get out again. You can't get out. Not even light can get out. If you try to send a beam of light out, send a message out to your friends, it will just bend and it too will fall down into the singularity. So the horizon is the point of no return. Okay, so this is, you'll see this picture quite a number of times. It's a black hole and it's two special regions, the core and the point of no return, the event horizon. Now there's lots of black holes in the universe. They're all over, but they're too far away for us to make the, the kind of precise observations that it would need to, to um, see quantum mechanics working. And so the rest of this talk um, is, is, is built around theoretical ideas. And again, I'd like to just mention again the fact that in the past, these kind of theoretical ideas have come back ultimately to observation. But for now, uh, we have to understand the theory. And so um, a basic tool is a thought experiment, um, not a real experiment. It's some, a thought experiment is something that you could do if you had the resources, but you don't. But you can still a ask, you know, we have these theories. We can, t we can imagine some situation. We can ask, what does quantum mechanics predict? What does general relativity predict? And if they give incompatible predictions, we've learned something. We've learned that one of these has to be modified, that it can't be the whole truth. And so that's a clue as to this theory that we're looking for that ultimately incorporates all these principles. Um, if this were a longer talk, um, I could give you some examples from the past of, 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 of thought experiments that have played a big role in helping us to understand how nature works. Um, but but um, I'll, I'll move on. So, so, so um, it was actually Stephen Hawking here um, who, who really first began to think about what happens, um, what does quantum mechanics say about a black hole? And he discovered something quite remarkable. So um, as I've described the black hole, it's this very massive object, has a very strong gravitational pull. Anything that gets behind the event horizon can never get out. And so it would seem that a black hole can only get bigger and bigger and bigger. Whenever something gets too close and gets sucked in, it's trapped forever. And so black holes would get bigger and bigger and bigger. What Hawking showed is that once you take into account quantum mechanics, they all, there's, they act, there's more that can happen. So, so, another, so another thing about quantum mechanics is that even in what seems like empty space, there are constantly pairs of particles, these basically particles and antiparticles, popping out of the vacuum, out of empty space, and then disappearing again quite quickly. So this might be time going upwards here. So appearing, disappearing all over the place. And it happens very quickly, but it produces indirect effects on things like the spectra of atoms. And so we know that this is happening, and again, we understand it very well. But what Hawking realized is if this, is hap if this happens near a black hole, so here's my black hole again, and now I've dressed it with some of these virtual particles, they're called. If a pair of these appears right near the horizon, instead of immediately disappearing again, something else can happen. One of the pair can get sucked into the black hole and disappear in the singularity, and the other one can escape. And the one that escapes carries away energy. 
and the black hole loses mass. And so if you had a black hole that was sufficiently isolated so nothing was falling into it, and you washed it for long enough, it would, em- it would eventually it would emit particle after particle. These particles are called Hawking radiation. Uh, and eventually it would evaporate and disappear completely. And this is very cool. And again, this is quantum mechanics and general relativity working together. Uh, general relativity, the curvature of space and how it responds to, to matter, and quantum mechanics, these virtual particles. And so far, again, the theories seem to work together quite, quite well, and this result we all believe. But then he went one step further a couple years later and said, if this happens, there's a real problem, a real change. It implies a real change in the laws of physics. So um, you could imagine, here's, another, here's a thought experiment. You could imagine having this black hole, which is about to evaporate, and you could imagine throwing in a book. And I've, this is Stephen Hawking's book I'm throwing in, but <laughs> I've written a book too. You could throw that in. You could throw anybody's book in. Um, and what he said is, because the book is disappearing behind the event horizon, once it's behind the event horizon, it can't influence anything on the outside. Um, the, the Hawking radiation that comes out won't depend on which book you threw in. It won't depend on whether it's his book or my book or whether you threw in a rock. The Hawking radiation will look exactly the same. Um, and, and we call this loss, he called this we call loss of information. The fact that the Hawking radiation looks exactly the same no matter how the black hole is prepared. And it may not be obvious, but this is a very disturbing thing. Because... Our laws of physics, so, so what, a, what, a, what a typical law of physics looks like, whether it's Newton's law or Dirac's equation, it, what it, tes, it says is if we have a bunch of particles, say, and they're moving in some way, it tells us what will, hap- what will happen. It tells us, starting from wherever they start, what they will look like sometime later. But also, the, all those equations have the property that you can run them backwards. If you look at how the system ends up, you can run the equations backwards and figure out how the system began. Um, and, and, and that is lost, according to Hawking, with black holes because you can look at the final Hawking radiation and it will be exactly the same, again, no matter what you threw into the black hole. So you, if you run this backwards, you can't actually reconstruct what happened in the past. And again, this is, this is very disturbing because... This points to both a very different kind of equation underlying physics, but also, you know, math and physics are, are you know, they're, they're, they're tightly linked. It also implies that the basic physical principles that, that, that we're used to throughout nature, they're different for black holes, and, and they're different seemingly that, I mean, black holes are just the, a step towards this theory of, of, of quantum mechanics and general relativity together, it's saying that, that the laws of physics are very different from anything that we're used to, and in a way that seems difficult, unlikely to be consistent, unlikely to be true. And, and so for 40 years, actually, people tried to find the mistake in Hawking's argument. So Hawking's argument left us with, with um, two choices, either... It's what he said, information is lost, and this requires, again, new kinds of laws of physics, and in particular, it's really not consistent with 
this quantum mechanical theory that works so well everywhere else, or the information escapes, but that means that somehow, since light can't escape from a black hole, it means that somehow things are traveling faster than light. Information is traveling faster than light, and that violates relativity. And so we had this terrible choice. Neither of them seems very attractive. And, and, and for 40 years, we, we tried to figure out which is true or what's wrong with the argument. Um, we got a big clue about 20 years ago. Um, and it, it's based on an idea known as duality. So, so duality is when two things look like they should be very different, but they're really the same thing. There's a very old question. Is light a wave or a particle? And this is something that, that physicists argue about going back to Newton. There were good arguments that, that, that if you have a beam of light, it should be a wave. And there were other good arguments that the beam of light should actually be just a beam of little particles. And the fact is that both are true. Quantum mechanics tells us that both are true, that light has both the oscillatory properties of a wave, it certainly does, but also it, a beam of light actually is composed of a bunch of little chunks like particles. And so um, the answer is waves and particles are not really different in quantum mechanics. They're just the same thing looked at in a different way. Um, and it's not just true for light. It's true for electrons and, and all the other building blocks of nature. Um, and this duality, this idea that things could look different, this is because, again, part of this is because you know, quantum mechanics, we're not used to. We, we didn't grow up with quantum mechanics. It's, it's very small things. We don't know how, but, 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 but in fact, nature is, is different from, maybe stranger than what we're used to. So this fellow, Juan Maldacena, discovered another duality. It's, there are a number known, but his duality is quite remarkable because instead of waves and particles, what he showed is that black holes, these things that we're trying so hard to understand, are actually the same things as, well, something much more ordinary, a, a gas of, or of nuclear particles. So we, we know a lot about the nuclear force, nuclear particles. We have protons, neutrons. We have quarks and gluons inside them. We understand nuclear physics really very, very well. And so this remarkable statement that this very strange thing with all of its bizarre properties could be the same as this thing, which is still pretty exotic, but, but much less exotic and much better understood, that, that's a remarkable statement. And, and it, it's, again, it's a bigger version of this wave-particle duality. Um, and it's really pretty much the deepest thing that we know about the basic laws of physics, the deepest thing that we know uh, about, about uniting quantum mechanics and gravity. And one, it, 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 it has many consequences, but one, one is, since we know that these satisfy the ordinary laws of, of quantum theory, that information is not lost, then also over here, the black hole can't destroy information. And a few years after this argument, Hawking agreed. He, he well, it surprised me, because he's a very strong-willed person. He must be, of course, to do what he's done. Um, and, but it surprised me that he changed his mind about his, his claim about the dice. But we still don't know. We still don't know where his mistake was. We have this, this really indirect argument that he was wrong, and, but, but we don't know where the original argument went wrong, and we also don't know how to take this duality they told you about and build a complete theory of quantum gravity from it. And so about three years ago, um, several of us here at UCSB, my colleague Don Maroff and two grad students, Ahmed Almheri and Jamie Sully, we were 
returning to this question as we had many times, and we, 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 we tried to take um, Hawking's argument and reverse engineer it, and we realized that, that there's a new paradox, that, that, that there were things that, people, that everyone believed, including us, and they couldn't all be true. So, so, so everyone believed that information is not lost. That's what I just told you about. They believe that an observer who stays outside the black hole doesn't see anything unusual like particles moving faster than the speed of light. But also an observer, an astronaut who jumps into the black hole sees nothing unusual, especially right here at the event horizon. Um, so, so, so the inside of the black hole might seem like an exotic place, but it could be quite large. For, for a big black hole, the distance from here to here might be a billion miles, a long, long distance. And so an astronaut who falls into a black hole would experience a very long period of just ordinary space before finally getting crunched by the very strong gravitational field down here. That's what Einstein's theory said, but, but, but these things can't all be true. And the, the, reason, the reason for the contradiction um, comes from another mysterious property of quantum mechanics known as entanglement. I've, I've mentioned the randomness and the duality. This is maybe the weirdest of all. Um, and I'm going to use dice again to illustrate it. Uh, imagine I had a pair of dice prepared in a special way so that I roll the first die, and it could come up with any one of its numbers, one through six. But whatever number the first die comes up with, the second die will always come up with the complementary number so they add to seven. You know, you could make a lot of money if you had a pair of dice that would do that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you can't. It's, it's, this is some kind of mysterious link between the dice. But in quantum mechanics, this happens all the time. This is really the essence of quantum mechanics. And in fact, when the Hawking process happens, the pair of particles that's produced is entangled, A and B here. Um, but, but, but conservation of information uh, requires something different. It requires that the different Hawking particles, here's the same particle B, coming out later, um, have, they have to be entangled with each other. So B has to be entangled with C. So these things that contradict, one, so B has, B has to be entangled with A, it also has to be entangled with B. The laws of quantum mechanics don't allow this. They, we say that entanglement is monogamous. B has to choose. Can't have it both ways. And, um, and, and if you choose one, you lose information. If you choose the other, something very bad happens at the horizon. Because if you, if you preserve information, if you keep the entanglement between B and C, you lose the entanglement between A and B. And that's sort of like breaking a chemical bond. Breaking a chemical, chemical bond means you've got energy there. And so, and so if you, if you um, preserve information and give up the entanglement between A and B, where you thought where Einstein's theory says you have a, a, smooth, a smooth space, you in fact will have a wall of energy. Um, and, and this is what my colleague Don called a firewall. I'm not sure it's the best name. But it means that space looks very, this is again, quantum mechanics versus space-time. It means that space looks very different from what Einstein's theory says, and, and quantum mechanics takes away a big chunk of it. And nobody believed this. I mean, every, basically, people reacted to our paper the same way they reacted to Hawking's. They set out to find our mistake. And 
Three years later, no one has found our mistake. A few people have come up with ideas as to how this firewall might form. Many more people have proposed ways to avoid it. Um, but but the, um, there's, you know, there's no, these are all scenarios. They're not theories. There's a huge number of new ideas out there. This entanglement that I mentioned um, is really, we've known about this for 100 years. It's a cool property of quantum mechanics. But it's something which is playing a bigger and bigger role in our thinking. There are people trying to build computers which make use of quantum mechanics to, to operate much more efficiently than any normal computer. They use entanglement as a resource. Um, entanglement comes up, it, it, entanglement seems to provide perhaps the hooks that allow space to form, or maybe not to form. And, and so right now, all we can say is it's a very interesting time. We have a huge number of new ideas about how we're going to combine these, two, how, how we're going to find the theory that fits together these, these two principles. Um, and, and, and this is my last slide. You might ask, okay, observation. If we look at black holes that are out there, are there any effects? If we look at the very early universe, are there any effects? And it, it's really too early to say. As you might have gathered from my last couple of slides, we have a huge number of ideas and nobody agrees on what will be the winner. And, and so all we can say is that, 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 well, what I've tried to tell you is both you know, the big picture of these great theories we have, the challenge we have in fitting them together, some of the success we've had in, in, in the past and the discoveries like the Higgs boson and antimatter that have resulted from, from this kind of, from this, um, and, and where we sit today and what questions we're trying to answer. So thank you. I happened to read, been reading an article a while back on the internet, and uh, uh, is it uh, uh, some people speculate that there wasn't a big bang theory because uh, the laws of quantum mechanics and uh, uh, gravity break down at that point, like you said, is that why well um, or is that another there, there's a lot of I should say you know there's the number of speculations out there about the Big Bang, Big Bang is huge. But let me, let me, let me, let me so, so as I mentioned, we, we, we have a pretty darn reliable understanding of what happened back to quite an early point. But if you follow it back further, there's a lot of ideas. There's one idea, well, it's actually a bunch of ideas, but they, what they, they're all based on the possibility that the universe at one point was contracting very fast and then it bounced. Um, there's other classes of ideas where you have sort of one big bang followed by another. There'll be a big bang, there'll be some expansion, and then little or big bangs within that. Um, and, and there's another set of ideas where the big bang was a very, a more smooth thing where the universe kind of, a, well, appeared through a quantum fluctuation. So there's a very large number of theories of kind of what happened before our current observations reach. And, um, you know, it seems, it seems really incredibly ambitious to think that we might know the answer someday, but we know so much more now than we did 10 years ago and so much more then than we knew 10 years earlier that, that I think there's no limit to what we might know in the future. Uh, one last thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, when I stare out at some of the pictures, the picture you showed us, yes. 
It's just unbelievable whatever container we're in is so, so huge. It's beyond our comprehension. Now, what they're coming up with is another uh, uh, theoretical hypothesis is uh, parallel universes. Is it possible or, uh, uh, that, this, that the laws that you're researching or coming up with that work in this universe, if there are indeed parallel universes, do not work in, another, in that a good question. So, yeah, so, I mean, there's really been a history of the universe being much, a history of the universe being much bigger than we ever thought, from the Earth to the stars to the galaxy to the, to the vis- visible universe. So the visible universe, you know, is 10, 20 billion light years. But if we ask, you know, Einstein's equations, again, tell us that the universe is expanding. And if we, if we go back and ask Einstein's equations, you know, how big is the universe? How much has it expanded by? Well, we don't know, because it depends also on what kind of matter was around. But it's very, very easy. And in fact, there's a kind of a question. You know, as far as we look, as far as we look, the universe looks pretty much the same, same kind of galaxies and so on. And the question is, why? And so there's this theory of cosmic inflation, which is that the universe has expanded by so much by so much that we're seeing only a tiny piece of it. And the parts that we don't see could be very different. How different? And and, and so you mentioned different laws of physics. And indeed, that's possible. Because we don't... So I mentioned on my second slide, randomness. We don't know. We really don't know whether the laws of physics that we see, the mass of the electron, the strength of the nuclear force... Is, is something which is absolutely predicted by mathematics, which is what we hope, because we want to predict it, or is it random so it might be different in different places? And in fact, my fear, based on putting together... I haven't talked about the whole story and all the clues we have. My fear, based on uh, what we know about other things, is that it's random. That as you go... So, so that not only is the universe vast compared to what we can see, but as you go far enough, you have different laws of physics. There's one underlying set of laws that sort of govern the possible random outcomes, like quantum mechanics is that way. It predicts that things are random. But, but, but the actual thing that you would see in any given patch of the universe, you couldn't predict. And I don't like it, but, but, but it, it, there, I have reason to think it's, there's reason to think it's true. I guess starting with Stephen Hawking's idea of Hawking radiation, yes. how... And also with your idea with the firewall, how do you come up with these? Like, without having actually observed any black holes, how can you Good. even come up with hypotheses? So, um, you know, when you learn physics, you do a lot of calculations. And you learn, you develop sort of, well, you develop a feel for, for how things behave in regimes that you haven't directly experienced. And... and whether it's, whether it's the atomic scale or the cosmic scale. And, and so that's part of it. But, but certainly, um, you know, I'm not sure there's any... Well, one thing that I'm often trying to do is to make a simpler model. You know, rather than trying to make a whole... To imagine the mathematics of a whole black hole. To make, to make a simple mathematical model that might just have a few little points, but that would, that would have sort of the key question in it, where I could then... And that's, in fact, that's in fact um, 
we, my, my students and I tried to make a model of a black hole where all of the Hawking particles are kind of lined up along a line and, and where we could sort of see how we were going to get out of this contradiction and we realized we couldn't get out of this contradiction. So, 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 so I, it's, it's, um, so, 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 I mean, it's many things. It's, again, it's, 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 it's building up this experience of translating. Between. Mathematics is so powerful, but it's really powerful if you develop this dictionary between the mathematics and the physics that you, that you build up as you, as you learn the science. Um, and, and, so, and, and so it's, it, it, it's that. Well, I mean, I, those, those are my tricks. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Joe, you expressed a concern about the laws of physics back here being different in oh. different regions of the universe. Yes. And so what does the law mean then, right? I Good. mean, the law only makes sense if it's the same everywhere, right? Oh, hi, John. <laughs> Suppose I have, so, 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 so imagine I have a, a potential energy curve that's shaped like this that has a bunch of minima. But that means, so, so, if a potential, so whatever, nature wants to sit at the minimum of potential. It wants to roll to the bottom of the hill. It wants to sit at the bottom of the potential energy curve. And if these different minima, the, uh, the, 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 the thing that I'm thinking about rolling here is, is, is a field. If these different minima produce different laws of physics, then there's one overriding law of physics, which is the shape of this curve. But then there's the, the accident of which of the, minim, which of the minima that we're in that controls the actual laws that we see. And that's kind of what drives all this. The universe is very complicated, obviously. I mean, we have, we have hundreds of, uh, of elements and thousands of compounds and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. And all of this complication is coming out of what we believe are really very simple mathematical laws. Um, and again, one of the reasons, one of the, one of the tricks um, that allows simple laws to lead to a complicated world, um, well, I guess it's to say that you have a, a unique equation, but it has many solutions. And the different solutions, although they're, deri- although they're arising from a single fundamental law, we can't, we can't, we're limited in our, in our observational ability. We can't see to the bottom of things. We can't see the fundamental law that's operating. We can only see um, the, the, this one solution that we happen to experience. And so... Um, the laws that we see are dependent on which of many solutions we're in. Um, I don't know if either of those helped. <laughs> um, but that, that's the, that, the, short, the short answer is that all of our experience, and this goes back a very long way, is that we have simple and unique equations which, however, have a vast number of solutions. And, and, and the visible physical laws their unpredictability is what com- comes ultimately from that. So um, when you're thinking about a black hole actually evaporating, mm-hmm. can that only occur in the absence of matter and if you isolate it? Or yes, good, ways? good. So, um, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about black holes is the bigger they are, the slower they evaporate. And so the black holes um, that form from class of stars or the even bigger ones in the center of galaxies... Um, they would not have had time to evaporate in the life of the universe, and moreover, they would be getting bigger because there's always gas around that's falling in. But um, if, 
if it, it works out that if you had a black hole with approximately the mass of a mountain, it would be much smaller than a mountain. But if you had a, mass, a black hole with approximately the mass of a mountain, um, that would have evaporated in the course of the life of the universe. And so when Hawking first hit on this idea, he supposed that maybe there was some process in the early universe that would produce such black holes so that we could actually see them decaying even today. Unfortunately, as far as we know, we haven't seen any evidence for this, and as far as we know, there's no process that's dramatic enough to have produced these. But that, that's, a ver- that, that's indeed. The, 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 the astrophysical black holes are never sufficiently isolated for this. This is a true thought experiment. Okay. But it's hopefully a thought experiment from which we will learn something about the real universe. Yes? Okay. I'm sorry, I have another one. Sure. Um, so I know like when black holes occur, it's matter collapsing in on itself. Yes. Um, but how do, where does, like, I, I don't know if we know this, where does the matter go? Like, is it released as energy? or? So... Um, so, so what Einstein's equations say is that the matter, I, you, saw, you saw my picture, that the matter collapse, the collapse continues. The black hole first falls behind the event horizon and keeps getting smaller until all the matter is in that single point in the center. And, and it seems, well, it seems incomprehensible and, and, and very likely, well, but, 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 I mean, essentially, that's the answer. It, 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 it's, still right, it's still there in the center. Just really small. Just really small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were talking about uh, the firewall, uh, you said that the motivation for it is uh, when you have uh, one particle that's radiated and another uh, it's anti-particle that's absorbed, uh, you would accept entanglement between them. Yes. And for information to be conserved, instead there has to be entanglement between one radiated particle and another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the energy from that entanglement of the particle and its antiparticle has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why does it have to go towards uh, this uh, firewall-type construct instead of something like kinetic energy in the radiated particle? So... Um, well, another, let me try to answer that. So again, I said we, what we, we did is we tried to um, reverse engineer um, Hawking's argument. And we tried to suppose, again, that nothing bad happens, that information is not lost, um, and that nothing funny happens like energy appearing in the middle of nowhere away from the black hole. And we, as, as we sort of pushed into the horizon of the black hole, we found that in some sense, once we got to the horizon, we couldn't get any further. That is, the horizon, if nothing strange has happened before, by the time you get to the horizon, the horizon is the last, you, 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 you are, you're faced with the contradiction right there. So, so, so if you try to move... I mean, there's lots of people trying to move the problem around to different places. The problem is, if, 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 if you, if, if, if it seems that that strategy moves the problem from the inside of the black hole to the outside of the black hole, which, of course, would be very interesting because we could see it then. I would be, that would be my favorite resolution to this. And, and, and in fact, Steve Giddings, a professor here, is, is, is this, he's work, this is what he's convinced is true. He's working on exactly this. Um, 
I, don't, I just don't see how to make it work. So you said that when um, black holes are evaporating, it's energy that's being released when the um, two paired particles get split. So what happens to that energy? Does it, can it be, um, does it affect anything else or what happens to it? So, um, I mean, the, sh- the short, I mean, the, the short answer is, 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 is no, um, um, that, 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 you know, you, energy, total, so energy is conserved. The black hole starts with a certain amount of energy. A particle flies away carrying a certain amount of energy, and what you're left with is just a slightly smaller black hole. Now, there's a question which is sometimes asked, what about the particle that fell into the black hole, the other one of the pair, why doesn't that make the black hole heavier? And there's a funny bit of bookkeeping, which is that the particle that falls in has to have negative energy. And the words sound funny, but in fact, it's just bookkeeping in a sense. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. It, 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 it. It's a funny bit. It's sort of a funniness in the definition of energy. And so the, the balance sheet works. Energy is conserved. That's, that's kind of the, the best I can say. Yeah. Is it feasible for you to summarize the state of string theory now and how that relates to some of these problems you're tackling? Yeah. So, um, um, so I work a lot on string theory. Uh, I didn't mention strings. There's a 60-minute version of this talk in which they appear on one slide. Um, but in fact, um, string, so string theory, um, some of the problems of quantum gravity um, seem to get better, not the ones I talked about, but some of the other ones seem to get better if particles, instead of being little tiny points, are little tiny loops. And that's how string theory began. String theory has actually changed a lot. We now, in fact, in some sense, the center of what we now call string theory is this duality of Maldacenas, the duality between black holes and ordinary matter. Um, although it doesn't re- refer, although strings don't seem to appear in there, they're hidden, they're, they explain why this is true. And so string theory has, has morphed into instead, in some sense, this theory of duality. And um, it's, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's, go, it's going on to answer questions like this question about black hole information um, that, that, it, it, you know, that, 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 that it needed to answer. Um, it may morph again. I mentioned in my next to last slide, I, I talked a lot about entanglement in the last few minutes of my talk. And I mentioned that, that, you know, in this whole conflict between space, time, and quantum mechanics, it may be that in the end that entanglement provides the hooks that hold space together. And that doesn't sound like string theory, but in fact, um, it's it's, it's actually the same idea um, sort of understood understood more deeply. Theories, when they're discovered, like quantum mechanics and, and general relativity, they often start with kind of a cartoon of what the real idea is. And as they're understood better, we get closer to the right way to think about them. And that's what happened with string theory. Um, and I, I think it's so when I say that quantum gravity is in a very interesting stage, I mean specifically, I mean, especially in the context of the ideas that have come from string theory. So my question is in terms of, like, specifically when you're looking at the Higgs boson particles or quarks. Yes. 
there's possibilities of being able to physically prove them besides mathematical equations. Right. Is there any potential way to, pr to prove what you're looking at right now? Right. In the so this is, this is a very good question. Um, so nature has made things. So, so, so the, the problem that we're trying to solve again, which, is, which, is, which involves what happens when you have both the very small and the very massive, means that any experimental test um, is going to be something really extreme. We've got to get to a really extreme environment. And in some sense, the, I mean, I have to say, the biggest question is, how did the universe begin? And, 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 it's I mean, and, and this is a question which has observational consequences. I, I showed you you know, that one graph of the, of the cosmic microwave background. So, so if you kind of list where do you, where do you hope you can see this theory operating, you know, that's one place where we might look. I have to say for myself, the experience has been that, that um, you know, when you fit things together, you learn things you didn't expect to learn, like Dirac's prediction of antimatter. And so... Um, for me, the puzzles we have now, I don't know where they're going you know, to When we solve them, we'll know where they lead. And my, um, you know, my, my, my hope and expectation is that we will, we, will, we will learn things that we didn't even expect. Now, this duality of Maldacenas, which connects gravity to the other forces, um, it's, not, it's not as... It makes predictions. That is, you, you can use now gravity to actually calculate properties of exotic phases of ordinary matter. But it's, it's, it's sort of like applied string theory. It's like how, you know, the moon, the moon landing led to Teflon. It's not the real goal. It's a spin-off. Um, and so it, it, there are connections to observation, but the really, the, observation, the, the observations that would say this is the right theory it could come from the universe, or the universe, or it could come from someplace surprising. Once, once we get things figured out, um, I wish there were a more short-term and optimistic answer. But you know, this is what we're faced with when we're trying to combine these two theories. They they really come together only in very extreme places. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.